you have your Bibles, could you please turn them to Luke chapter 18? If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one uh, hopefully close by that you could reach in, um, open up, follow along this morning. Luke chapter 18. This is your first Sunday. I know uh, Champ has already greeted you, but I want to greet you as well. And if there's anything we can do to serve you, please let us know. It is your first Sunday. We've been walking through this kind of middle portion of Luke as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. We will begin reading this morning in Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Well, then who can be saved? Jesus said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said, look, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. When you watch a movie for the first time, whether it's a suspense or an action movie, a thriller, drama, there is an element of surprise. There are plot twists that you didn't see coming. When you watch your favorite movie for the 10th time, there is no surprise. You know what's coming, but there is a greater appreciation because you know it so well. You know where the story is going. You can see the producer or the director's artistry and putting things together in a way that you might have missed the first time or the first five times. I think this is one of those stories where it may be the hundredth time you've read or heard this story. It may be the thousandth time you've read or heard this story. Certainly you've been in church. You've probably heard this before. 
I think what we ought to do is try our best to gain the benefit of surprise, put ourselves in the original hearers and observers of this encounter. I think we ought to at least try to do that. But we certainly can gain from the insight of familiarity because we're walking with Jesus as he's going to Jerusalem and there are several important encounters. And this one is significant. All of them matter. This one's significant. So significant that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story almost exactly the same. And so this one, certainly, in each of the gospel writers, they wanted us to have this. And and certainly beyond that, the Holy Spirit wanted us to know these things. The ruler asked an important question, and I think it launches into a really important part of Jesus' teaching. And today I want to process this story by, by looking at exactly what Jesus was calling his followers to do, and then what that means for us. What exactly... Was Jesus calling his followers to do? What does that mean for us? The words and works of Jesus, especially in this story, should cause me, and let's start off here, it should cause me to deconstruct and then reconstruct my understanding of what is good, or or maybe better said, who is good. It should cause me to deconstruct maybe what I thought was good and make sure I'm reconstructing it according to scripture, of of, of who is actually good. The simple and very critical question for us to recognize is, what do I really believe it takes to be good? What do I really believe it takes to be good? There's This word is highlighted a few times in verse 18. The ruler asks and calls him good teacher. And, And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that is God, God alone. Jesus flags that statement right out of the gate, this word good, and he isn't just trying to be difficult in conversation. You've met those people. That's not Jesus here. Trying to be picky with words. He also surely is not admitting, I'm not good, because only God is. He's not saying that, because other places we get very clear indications that he recognizes he is God in the flesh. That's not what he's doing here. I think what he's What he's drawing attention to is this guy who has approached Jesus, this rich ruler who has come with a you and me, Jesus, we're we're the good guys kind of approach. He's been pretty cavalier throwing that word good teacher around. And Jesus calls him on that. Causes him on that approach, that attitude. Jesus, you and me, we're the good guys. So let's, let's hear from you. What does it take? to have this eternal life thing. Jesus lists some commands, doesn't he? He doesn't list all ten. He does list five. It's interesting that the five he lists are all those commands that have to do with loving your neighbor. Those are the ones that he lists. And and these are pretty observable. I mean, another person with all of these commands, it's, it's going to take another person. And it's not just between you and God. It's, it's certainly going to be between you and another person in the commands that he mentions. They're all observable. And, and this rich ruler is a high performer in these areas. This makes the next words of Jesus even more gripping. He says, I, I've kept all those. That's it? I've kept all those since I was a child. My guess is that many of us in this room do good things enough that we could put ourselves in the 
category of good guys and good girls most of the time. I'm guessing that would be our, I I don't know all about your lives, but I'm, I'm pretty positive. You're doing many good things. The Bible says to be pure, be holy. And imagine most of us are trying our best to honor that most of the time. Do you care about others? Well, good for you. Are you loyal? Well, that's good, isn't it? We don't like people that betray people. Are, are you the kind that would work for justice? Are you the kind of person that's fair? Are you the person that obeys authority and recognizes that, that God has given that authority? Are, are you good? Maybe you're like me. I, I generally want to count myself not in the bad guy category, but in the good guy category. And when... When someone pushes like, well, maybe you aren't so good, I I seem to be pretty armed with justifications, defenses, occasional excuses to make sure I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. When I do things that are not so good, I, I feel guilty and doubt and shame and irritation that I can't just be a little better. But Jesus is reminding us of this standard as we are kind of deconstructing our understanding of good. I mean, he might want to say five out of ten ain't bad. I think maybe he would have said, I'm kind of a ten out of ten. I obey the commands. But the truth is, he's not. And Jesus calls attention that you still lack something. You still lack something, doesn't he? What is the standard? In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the standard is this. James 2 makes it so clear. If you, you keep the whole law, but you offend it and you stumble, you break it in one point, you're guilty of it all. And because you're guilty of it all, you're guilty of, and you're, you're headed to eternal damnation. Jesus' instruction about the heart, I mean, Jesus would say, not just if you like... <laughs> literally murder someone, but if you have the anger in your heart. I mean, these are the words of Jesus, right? We can try to tone them down, but Jesus would would not have us do that. Jesus said, if you lust in your heart, you're, you're guilty. You are a commandment breaker. So much so that you are guilty of damnation. You are guilty of eternal hell. This is Jesus' words. The standard is Jesus who knew no sin. The standard is Jesus who is called just and righteous and blameless. 100% of the time. That is the standard. That's why Jesus can remind the man of something. You're lacking something. And that actually would be the first commands, the ones that aren't so easily observable, the ones that I I can't just put my finger on whether you are loving the Lord your God with all your heart or or whether you are having no other gods before the Lord. I, I, I can't always see that. I don't know what's going on in someone's heart. Jesus does. This is where Jesus starts with him. This is where he starts with us. Do not, do not, church. Let's not overestimate our goodness and let's not underestimate the standard of what it takes to be good. Let's not be the Pharisee. We go back even just earlier in this chapter, the Pharisee that thought he was pretty good. The tax collector said, God, be merciful because I am the sinner. God is good and we aren't and we need something from him. If there's anything we ought to hear loud and clear from the first part of the story is that there's no one good but God. Even as we walk out these doors, if if we can even claim to be good, it'll only be because God is good and has shown his goodness to us. The words and work of Jesus should cause me to evaluate my understanding of what is good, but it also should, it should 
cause me to grasp what is ultimate in my heart. What is really ultimate in my heart. And another way of saying that is what really matters to me. Jesus gets at this, doesn't he? He gets at this with this rich ruler. Jesus hears him say, you know, I I keep all the commands. And then Jesus says this, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. And why was he sad? Because he was extremely rich and that rich lifestyle that he had been living, he, he wasn't ready to give it up. The other passages parallel in Mark and in Matthew tell us that he walked away. He walked away sad. Jesus is not, Jesus has no chip on his shoulder. Read the account in Mark. It says he has compassion on this man. He looks at him and loves him. But Jesus loves us enough to, pull, to point out what is ultimate in our heart, what is driving. It's interesting Jesus put his finger on the one thing that really mattered to him. I think that's different for different people. What it would take for us to walk away and follow Jesus no more. I think that may be different for different people. Jesus knows what it is for this man. I don't, when Jesus says to this individual, sell everything you have, distribute it to the poor, I don't think that's a universal call. That won't be asked of you as you leave to give over title deeds to your house, liquidate every one of your assets, Give them all to the poor and let's just be migrants for Jesus. I I don't mean to minimize the command of Jesus one single bit. I just want to be faithful to scripture where there are women that are following Jesus and he never asks them, they're wealthy women, and he doesn't ask them to divest themselves of every single asset they have and distribute it to the poor. Zacchaeus in the next chapter, he will not, Zacchaeus will say, I want to take some of what I have and give it away. And Jesus won't say, not some, all, all, all. Jesus will not say that. So I don't believe this is a universal call that we're all supposed to do this. But he does, he does tell this man that. And doing this, I think Jesus is exposing and correcting the distorted values that this man has. And I think by, by implication, he, he can deal with our own hearts on this as well. What things do I think really, really matter? And what do I think doesn't really matter so much? Jesus begins to use these words in 23 and 24 and 25. He talks about the the treasure in heaven in verse 22. Treasure in extremely rich in 23. Wealth in 24. Rich person. The conversation is like material wealth, money, means. Would I walk away from Jesus? Because something else mattered to me more. We live in a world where the price tags we put on things as a society don't always match reality, do they? For this man, if we were just kind of forming the equation, we would have to say, for this man, treasure on earth was greater than the treasure in heaven. That's the equation he's operating. Treasure on earth... Because Jesus has just offered him treasure in heaven. He says, actually, I'll take the treasure on earth that's greater to me at this moment than any treasure in heaven you could offer me. For him, what he wanted was greater than Jesus' promises. Jesus says, you're not going to lose in this equation. He says, actually, I'm not going to lose this. This is what I want. And that's greater than anything you can promise me, Jesus. We deal with limits all the time. 
So I like pieces of technology and, and I'll look at things and I'll go to uh, on the websites and look and I'll go into the Apple store and covet a little bit there. There, there are pieces of technology that when they hit a certain price point, I go, I can't do that. It's not worth that to me. I'm the guy that I'll shop and I'll, I'll look at something and then, you know, you kind of look at the price tag and I'm sure my face registers the surprise at times, like, whoo. <laughs> and then sometimes they're like 40% off and I'm kind of doing the mental math of like, what would, whoo, nah, I think I'm going to walk away from that. I really like it. I don't think I'm going to do that. Or maybe for you it's a travel, or maybe for you it's a car, or maybe for you it's clothes, and you just look at the price tag and go, I can't do that. We do this stuff all the time. I just can't pay that much. It's not worth that to me. That's the real encounter that's happening to this man at that moment. Jesus has said, follow me. It's not worth that much to me. Just looking at the price tag. Makes me sad I have to walk away from this but I'm willing to do so. This is amazing. We sing uh, at times at our church, Be Thou My Vision, and there's a line in that, Thou and Thou only, first in my heart. Thou and Thou only, first. And this man would have to say, "Eh, not so much. And my question is, would we have to say, "Eh, not so much? What is it for us that would cause us to even flinch here? Maybe... I mean, Luke has plenty, the Bible has plenty of, plenty of warnings that likely for many of us, it could be money, it could be riches, it could be wealth, or at least the things that money brings. And compared to the world, we have to understand, we have to understand that the vast majority of us are extremely wealthy. I don't think I could give that up. Or would I check my convictions at the door so that I could be on the, in, you know, you, we all know, the inside group. The inside group when it comes to school or the inside group when it comes to work or kind of the friend group that "Ah, I just want to be in that group. Would I check my convictions at the door because that would matter to me? Do I treasure my image to such a degree that I fear losing it? What is making me really, really happy right now? What is making me really, really unhappy right now that I don't have? What am I really afraid of losing? Would, and here's the question, would I walk away? Would I walk away? Would you walk away? As I've wrestled with that question this week, I have, to, I have to tell you, would I walk away from Jesus? And if I would, what would I do it for? I'm not sure. I'd like to be the one that says, though all men walk away, never me. But then I sound more like Peter than I, I want to. Though all men forsake you, not me. I'd never do that. How do you even know? I doubt the ruler, and surely he didn't wake up that morning. And go, if I have a divine encounter with God, I'm just going to walk away from him. Because I love stuff. My bank account really matters. Surely he never thought that. Surely he never thought that. I think at least one of two things is going on here. I think this matters for us, okay? I think for him, it has to be one of these two things. Maybe he really does value Jesus. But something else has really become valuable to him and potentially in a fatal way. It's not that he doesn't value Jesus at all. There's just something else really, really matters to him. The the other option would be this. I mean, it's not so much that anything had a real deep hold in his life. It's just 
He never really valued Jesus that much anyway, despite the outward appearances. I mean, one of those two things is going on for him to walk away. Either he just valued something so much more than Jesus, or it all was a facade. It all was a facade, the good teacher, that I keep the commandments, that when God in flesh comes to him and says, this is what it takes to be my disciple, I wonder what it is for us. I wonder if we can just let the story work on us a little bit. Is there any guarantee that I wouldn't do the exact same thing? That if you put your, if you put your finger on, maybe it's not wealth, maybe it's friendships, maybe it's family, maybe it's like my time. Is there any... Is there anything that I would say, I, 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 can't, I can't go any further, Jesus. You, you've got all you're going to get from me. Is it that certain lifestyle? Is it, I just want my kids to have what I never had? Is it, I mean, what, what is it? I'm guessing that, again, this man didn't make this decision one day. There was lots of things that just led up to this moment. And so this is what I would say for us spiritually. This is all I can say even from my own heart. Is I, I do believe the Holy Spirit will give us check engine lights occasionally. Or maybe it's more like check your soul kind of light. I think it comes up on the dashboard occasionally. I think this is God's kindness to us. To say, what, what, does this matter so much to you? You're willing to forsake gathering together with God's people regularly because of this? You're willing when, when I say, let's go this way, to go, I think I'm going to hang on to what I want to do. This relationship, even though I know is taking me away from Jesus, I'm going to hang on to it. This bitterness that I know is driving me away from Jesus, I'm going to hang on to it because I was done wrong. I mean, what, what, what is it? I'm guessing there might have been a season of drift where the word, God's word, wasn't as valuable to him. I'm guessing there was a series of small decisions that showed his true priorities. You know, there's sometimes we, we write a check or we deposit the money, we pay online, and we, we're, we're making a value statement. This is worth it. But, but what, are, what else are we saying by doing that? Are we making some commitments? Are we agreeing to something? And there's a trajectory of our life that's generally going away from Jesus. So at the moment of confrontation, we're ready to walk away. I'm guessing that if he had friends close to him to see what's really going on, and he'd really opened up to him and said, this is what I'm considering, I think they would have known. I think one of the safeguards in my heart is like gathering with God's people, putting myself under the hearing of God's word, saying, you will speak first. Lord, point out anything in my heart. It seems to be drawing me away from you. That seems to be not just important, but way, way too important to me. What seems to be critical in my heart is that someone would at least know me close enough, well enough to go, that's, you seem to be talking about this a lot. It seems to really matter to you. And where does this fit into your walk with the Lord? May God give us some people that would ask us that. That's a true friend. That's a true friend. In that moment, do we just grow cold or do we confess, do we repent? I have to ask myself, would I walk away? Would I walk away from Jesus? Jesus can help us grasp. I mean, he's like a laser, isn't he? Just pinpointing our heart. But the words and work of Jesus do something else. They, they should cause me to recognize 
and realize the impossibility of saving myself? Do I understand that no one, no one can save themselves? Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, it says in verse 24, says, this is just disciples. Everybody who's watching, pay attention. Because it is very, very difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So he uses the word difficult and easy. Those who hear it go, who can be saved? And he says, actually, let me ramp it up. It's not only difficult, it's actually impossible. It's actually impossible. Easier and difficult become possible and impossible. And it's like the disciples. I, I don't think I registered the shock that they must have had. I think everything in them would have told them, Pharisees are the ones that's going to be, they're, they're, they're the ones that are going to be declared right with the Lord. And, and a guy like this, I mean, wealth is a sign of God's blessing often, and he's a commandment keeper, not a lawbreaker. Surely he's okay. And Jesus says, No. Sometimes I have a hard time appreciating the surprise, but imagine, and this is only for an analogy, the analogy will break down in several places, but maybe it at least helps us process the shock. Imagine you have a friend who's a student, and they're coming to their professor with a, maybe, let's say, two weeks left, and they ask their professor, they ask him or they ask her, Professor, have I done everything I need to get a good grade in this class? And the professor says to your friend, well, you know the requirements. Have you completed your homework assignments? Have you done well in the quizzes? Have you written the papers? And your friend says, I've done it all. I've done it all. Then the professor says, well, if you notice the course syllabus, at the very top, it's all about mastering this subject. And the professor says to your friend, that was on the syllabus, and I want you before the end of the semester, if you want, if you want a passing grade, I want you to write and publish ah, a 700-page book that could win the Pulitzer Prize on this subject to show you really have mastered it. You got a couple weeks, but if, if you want to pass the class, they say to your friend, so your friend begins to talk with you, and oh, by the way, you're in the class too. And this is a requirement for your graduation too. And, and maybe you're not quite the A student they are, but you think, ah, if they can't, after all the good work they put into this class, if now we've got the goalposts seem to have moved in some way where now I, this 700-page book has to be written. I mean, who even, that's not even possible that it's got to be written to this level of mastery. That's a, that's a joke. Not only are they not going to pass their class, I'm not going to pass the class either. I think this may give us a taste of what this man is feeling. Really, the only option seems to walk, be to walk away as a failure. I mean, you have a host of good things that you've done and bad things you've avoided. No points, no credit for that, so it seems. And this, there's this narrow slice of what, in your mind, seemed to be an optional thing that you could have done better. Oh, because you didn't do that failing grade costing you everything. I mean, this is some of the shock the disciples were registering. And if we follow the analogy, again, it breaks down. But if we follow it a little bit further, I think we would say to, 
by way of analogy. Salvation comes to that student when someone hands them the award-winning book already written and they look at the cover and it has their name on it. Like, actually, you did write the book. Here it is. Turn it in. You passed the class. You aced the test. That's the only hope that person would have. Again, it breaks down. But forever wouldn't we be grateful? What was impossible for the student has become possible only because of a generous author that says, here's the book. You pass the class. You graduate now. This is what the Lord has done for us and so much more. Make no mistake, we all need outside intervention. Luke will tell us this again and again in different ways and in different stories. Without outside intervention, everybody fails, 100% of us. You can't save yourself. With man, that's absolutely impossible. But with God, this is a different story. <laughs> with God, this is possible. As the, as the story progresses, I don't think Peter is necessarily like asserting now his self-righteousness. That wouldn't seem to match what's going on here. But I do think he's defending what he's done. He's defending what he's done the last three years as he has followed Jesus around. And look what he said. Peter says, we've done this in verse 20, 28. We, we've left our homes. We followed you. That rich ruler was not willing to do that. Peter says, we have done that. And the words and work of Jesus should cause us to do one more thing, and that is obey the call of Jesus to leave things behind and follow him to leave things behind and follow him. And the, the question we have to ask is, are, are we truly doing it? This is, Peter says, this is what we've done. And, and if we just take Peter saying, this is what we've done, we've left everything and we followed you, just like you told the rich ruler to do, we've done that. What I think the Lord would, would remind us of this morning is Jesus could just as easily again say, Peter, if it were in your own strength to do that, this would have been impossible. You would not have done that. But with God, all things are possible. This has only been possible by God calling you. Peter, you have left everything. You have denied other things so that you could follow me. This is only possible because God opened your eyes. This is only possible because God opened your ears and let them hear. This is only possible because God has given you something like a new birth. You've been born again. This is only possible because God has given you the faith to believe. That's the only way this could have been done. And because, Peter, you have followed me and God has done the impossible in your life, he said to all of them, truly I say to you, no one, no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents, child, none of those who have left all those things for the sake of the kingdom, none of those will, surely they will receive many times more even in this time and in the age to come eternal life. There's something about following Jesus. Hear this. I think this is exactly what Jesus is telling us. There's something about following him in that the, the losses never outweigh the gains. The losses are never going to outweigh the gains, not with Jesus. He says, you, you give up your earthly family, the Lord will give, you, give to you a spiritual family. So this becomes hard. I mean, what if every bit of earthly support and comfort is stripped away? What about our, our friends that are believers and they're the only believer in their village and they have really left everything 
and they're following Jesus, and this has cost them their family, and there really isn't a church surrounding them. What about, what about them? I, I think even if every bit of earthly support and comfort is stripped away and taken from you, you would still have Jesus, and that would be more in the gain column. That would far outweigh the loss. You would have the Holy Spirit. That would far outweigh the loss. You would have peace in your heart. That would far outweigh any losses. You, you might... Concur- and that you may incur some of those losses. Jesus doesn't say you won't. You have your guilt taken away. You have the righteousness of Christ. And in the age to come, everything will be made right. When someone promises gains and says, mm, there may be some short-term losses, but, but trust me, there, there are lots of gains. It's, it's going to be good for you. It, we're right to view people like that with suspicion. Until, until they've endured the losses. So the disciples could say, well, easy for you to say, Jesus, about losing everything for, for your sake. The disciples were thinking that. Jesus answers that. He calls the 12 to him. And what does he say in verse 31? You want to talk about losing everything? Denying yourself? Renouncing everything? You want to talk about what you're going to give up to follow me? Let me just make it very, very clear what I'm giving up to save your soul. And he says, we're going up to Jerusalem and there's these things that have been predicted and promised by prophets and we're going to accomplish. I, I'm going to accomplish all of that. And this is the way that's going to be accomplished. And, and the disciples at the end of this chapter are puzzled. And, and part of me wants to go, did you not hear what he said? This is the third time he said it. Did, he made it so clear, did he not? I mean, he, he, he makes it as clear in this passage as anything else. And, and yet maybe, what, what were they thinking? And their heart seems to be like they, they couldn't quite grasp it all. It was hidden from them. Maybe they were thinking, there Jesus is talking again about something, you know, some analogy, like he said, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And I, maybe this is one of those weird analogies. I don't know. They couldn't quite grasp it. I hope every person in this room grasps exactly what Jesus is saying. He won't call you to some place where he hasn't already gone first and endured the wrath of God so that your soul might be saved. A life of trust means that we, we leave things behind if called upon. If necessary, we say, I don't need that. I don't, I don't need any earthly prop. What I need is Jesus, and I'll follow him. And that life is going to be centered on his cross and his resurrection. Will you make the choice to obey the call of Jesus, to leave everything behind and to follow him? If you need help in like processing that call, for a lot of people, that's not just even a moment in time. That's like, I, I've got to think about that. I would encourage you to talk to a Christian friend. I, I'd love to talk with you. Any of the pastors of this church would be glad to, to talk through what does it mean to leave everything behind to follow Jesus only. I would just leave you with the hope, hopeful promise. You might think that's actually impossible. But Jesus has just told us what's impossible with man. This is possible with God. Can I ask you to bow your head? Father, we have heard Jesus' words that what is impossible with man is possible with God. So we do pray. Oh Lord, help us see the perfect standard of good and our desperate need for Jesus Christ to be our substitute in meeting that standard.
Oh Lord, help us to see what is really going on in our hearts, what really matters to us. And I pray that you would thoroughly, but Lord, we say gently deal with everything that matters to us that's more than important to us than Jesus. Lord, help us to see that salvation only comes from you. Through your work on the cross, you've made the rescue of our souls possible. Help us to see that obedience to your call is possible because you're worthy of trust and submission. I pray that you would answer all of our requests in such a way that Jesus is seen as the most valuable thing in the world. We ask it in his name. Amen.